0: The mechanics of heart opening are such that you soften your habitual closures when appropriate. And that's very, very, very important. And so there's two components to that. The component number one is you could say let's say a puppy, right? So a puppy is a perfect example or your you, you pet of choice, right? So so when I touch any of my dogs or see any of my dogs or just think of my dogs, it opens my heart, absolutely, right? Uh, or my nieces, you know. It's the same kind of a feeling of, ah, you know, and it's an unguarded, um, spontaneous blooming of the heart based on the fact that you don't have to Guard against. Right, I mean, you don't have to guard against a puppy. Mm-hmm. So, so you can assume that if your heart opens spontaneously, um, unless you're really kinked, uh, you know, and your heart, and, and that's not your consideration. There is people where there's weird stuff happening, but that's not what we're talking about. If the heart blooms spontaneously, you can trust your heart. Right? that That's one way to say it. If your heart does not open spontaneously, then there's two things to consider. Either the muscle of heart opening is weak based on um, a set of circumstances, and those circumstances are um, trauma, injury, precedents that are opening your heart is very painful or the kind of upbringing where you were raised by horrible people and you've never had an experience of love right so it would be either or so you've had layers and closures over the heart because of precedents and experience and um, life or you've never experienced it so that's one option the other option is it's not entirely clear if opening your heart is a good thing, right? So you have to always weigh the options there. And so one, one aspect of that, how do you open your heart beyond the injuries and closures, that's one set of circumstance and practice and skill, how do you discern if opening your heart is a good thing is another set of skills. They are not necessarily the same skills. right? So one of the ways that you can look at it is if you have closures, constrictions, previous trauma, precedent, and you don't want to be relegated to live a life that's less loving than you want it to be, then you can look at some of the injuries and take care of them, right? So you first nurse yourself in the way that you have uh, compassion for yourself, potentially compassion about other people, that you do the healing needed, either through therapy or conversations or inner child work or whatever, whatever it takes, right? Different people have different remedies and, and uh, prescriptions for that. But so you, you heal the obvious fresh wounds of, that, of the heartache, so to speak. And then you realize that you want to love and you want to bring your heart's love to the world and to select people and to all dogs. Let's say, (laughs) right? And then you work on (laughs) allowing the blooming of the heart to occur. And so one of the ways you do that is you seek out uh, things that create the spontaneous opening. So you surround yourself with things that open you to beauty, to puppies, to animals and, you know, things like that. So you train the muscle of the heart to have the regular occurrence of that, And on the other hand, you relax your constrictions enough and you work with them so you can open your heart despite previous injury if you choose, right? And so that's a specific practice where you remember, you know, like you could do this in something like a loving-kindness meditation, there's lots of those out there. Steve has one on his SoundCloud um, that's very lovely. It's called the, whatever, 3D Loving Kindness, uh, where you feel your heart open towards somebody you love, and then eventually you do uh, meditation practices that allow you to open your heart even when you think of your enemies, let's say, you know, as a way to feel beyond your constrictions. Uh, so that's one option. The other option is to remember moments where your heart opens and really get a somatic sensation of that and bring that into your interactions with people. Another way is to uh, cultivate compassion towards people so that you can have feelings of compassion and openness and tolerance towards our fellow humans. Right? So those are all things that you can can do to create heart openness as a muscle as a skill mm-hmm. right. on the other hand you have to track the opening and closing of your heart as it occurs and correlate it to, in, to um, evidence so you're speaking with somebody your heart feels a bit guarded mm-hmm. and you go, why is my heart guarded? And then you see if you can relax it, but it's still a bit guarded. And then you go, well, I don't think I can trust this person based on this evidence. Or it's just a hunch, right? Then you let it go. Then you see the next person. Eventually, you'll get distinctions. You can go, I had this feeling with this person and then they fucked me over. Mm-hmm. Or I had this feeling with this person and they were hurtful to me. Mm-hmm. right? Like... The other day, um, this f- guy who my husband knows from way back, who's like this fancy LA hip, well, he's been hip since the early 80s yoga teacher, you know, one of the big yoga teachers, came through here uh, on a visit with his daughter and uh, their son. And, you know, we're opening like the, the, the land up so he, the kid can see all the animals and whatever. And, he wa- and I just came home from Europe and I'm a bit tired. And I'm kind of a little bit, ah. Uh, and I, I just have this feeling. And I'm going, well, there's really no reason. The guy's really nice or whatever. And the next thing he says to me is like, well, you better go ho- be home a little bit more, because your garden is like feral. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm <would> like, <laughs> right? And, and so, so that would be a perfect example. And I was very offended, because I love my garden as wild as it is. And yes, it's got a few rough patches, because, when I'm not here nobody fixes the sprinklers but you know that's not the first thing you say to somebody no. at their home when invited to pet the animals and you know it's it's not it's not very nice so I could I could go if that I could go oh okay discernment right this is a guy who's a bit snarky he probably didn't mean it but that's the way he talks so he clearly had no feeling sense of who I was doesn't mean I'm closed towards him entirely, but I'm certainly not going to be saint like openness to, you know, why? But it's not important to be saint like and open. You always hear this love with an open heart, despite. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, unless you are, you know, Saint Therese of something. Um, you probably want to have a little bit more discernment of you know, opening your entire life and soul and, and emotions to somebody who's an asshole. You can have compassion. Your compassionate heart can go, well, this guy is just a bit you know, uncalibrated. You know, I can have compassion for that, but it certainly doesn't make me expose myself to him any further. I don't go then, oh let me show you this, right? Because let me show you my new writing shade. because you know he's going to say something nasty about it, right? Mm -hmm. Just because there's evidence already. That would be a very concrete example of having distinction around whom you open yourself towards, right? And that's just a social example. Of course, if this is somebody you are dating, this Mm -hmm. is an even more important considerations that you measure and and track the opening and closing of your heart and you correlate it to behaviors mm-hmm. and then of course you can go well you know what I don't think the guy is an asshole it's just uncalibrated I'm going to say something and then see if it can be fixed or you can go what? this guy behaves like any other guy I've ever dated huh, okay, let me go and talk to somebody about how I behave in a certain way and why I let this occur again and again. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if it's the other person or you, the calibration has to do with the trust of the heart or not. And when you open your heart, the, like you said it beautifully, the concurrent feeling is one of a very deep sadness, And it's not like a boo-hoo-hoo, but there is a a feeling. And often you see when people's hearts open, they start weeping. I mostly do. Like sometimes like out of the blue when my heart opens, I'm like, you know. And it's not a sadness in the classic sense, but it is the the subtext of the knowing that it's um, finite and that it will go one way or the other. Right, and that everything will go one way or the other. The, it, it is the ache of love in a certain way. And that's also something that keeps people from keeping their hearts open or, or opening their hearts, because who wants to feel that sometimes? Right, And often mm-hmm. with those who you love the most, you certainly don't want to consider that mm-hmm. you know they're on their way out, like we all are. Right? It's just a matter of when, not if. And that's a tough thing to actually um, carry with the love. And so um, often we keep the, you know, because the heart is like an an iris, right? The, the, The emotional heart opening, right? You can be completely closed or wide open, but there's a wide range And it can go exactly like iris. You know, the stimulus comes in, you close, and then, you know, you get used to it and you open back up and all of that. So most people allow only a certain amount of light to come in, so to speak, uh, that gives the feeling but not enough opening so that there's the pain because the feeling isn't that deep. So that's something to play with when you do the loving-kindness meditation as well. Well, the benefit is that it's very beautiful, you know, it's very, very beautiful. It's also very painful, but it's painful anyway. So you might as well have the beauty with the pain, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Um, It sucks. Being alive sucks. And you just have to have lived long enough to know that that's true, Right? Because at some point you will have lost somebody and shit will have gone wrong and your heart has been broken and your bicycle has been stolen and your house has burned down and you know, your friends have betrayed you or died or worse. Right? So um, you might as well have the sweetness with the pain. And that's the reason why. You are absolutely right. The kind of man who has a better direction than you have has more perseverance, strength, and ability mm-hmm. to know where it's going, is another way of saying it, and isn't letting you uh, tell him what to do, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking necessarily about muscles, even though bodily strength, of course, has something to do with it, and also the ability to make money and 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 handle life right but so those are the things we're looking for in your man and like you said the guy who doesn't let you tell him what to do doesn't let anybody tell him what to do Mm -hmm. and is probably extremely oriented towards forging his own path because that's what he's all about what you like about him is that he knows exactly where it's going and he's going to go there regardless of what happens right regardless that's a guy who if he's willing to commit you have to hop on his right whatever his right of choice is but he's not going to go on yours and he's not going to choose a, a different ride. right it's not the guy who says I have a train you have a motorboat we're going to settle on a car uh, and let's just drive the car together right that's not how it's going to go so that kind of a guy, if he is available, will require that you essentially totally follow his program, whatever his program is, which is a bit of a suck, right? Because you might not want to do exactly all the things he wants to do, and you might want to have a life of your own. But more often than not, those kind of guys, as rare as they are, and there are some, um, they also have some other traits that come with that much desire for freedom and that is they're uncompromising and for the most part they're not monogamous because why should they right when you are at the very top of the heap and you have a choice of every female between 18 and 80 (laughs) why would you want to commit to one exactly right so so now there is the, the occasional rare unicorn but that's Something that I wouldn't necessarily say you should hold out for, you know, because that's uh, that's a potential trap. Right? However, and I'm not saying you should settle for wimpy guys, but you can identify a few areas that you are definitely not stronger than a guy, right? And. And where you are willing to take the lead of a guy without having to have the full package. And then look at guys who have that. Mm -hmm. And that can look uh, a number of ways, right? So for instance, you might be better at adventure and kicking ass, but he has a very deep spiritual grounding and, and direction that you can absolutely put yourself under or, or onto the boat with him, so to speak, or the train with him. Um, so that would be one thing where you choose something that's important to you that's clearly nothing where you just need a guy to outdo you, but where a guy with good, strong capabilities will give you that feeling of you going along for a ride. And then you cultivate that. And that might mean there's a few areas of the relationship where you're by far stronger. And then there's other areas of the relationship where he's by far stronger. And that actually works well because then you can maintain your independence and your uh, trajectory where you want because you're not choosing him in those areas like he does whatever he does and you do whatever you do but then you have areas where you so to speak follow him and he is the expert and then there might be some areas where he follows you and you are the expert right and that's that's very doable so the key isn't to only be with men who are you know, so far ahead of you, the key is to identify areas where you would respect the man. No. That are ideally not your areas of expertise. Because for the most part, and this is true for most women in most situations, if you are really good at something in that domain, meaning in what we now casually call the masculine domain, it's a bit more comp- complicated and nuanced like, than this, but let's just call it that. It's going to be hard for a man to be better than you. You have cultivated those skills, so your sexual preference is clearly in the in the surrender realm, right so is mine. but some of my greatest gifts are in the kick ass realm, right by far, I would say that probably seventy percent of my greatest you know things are clearly in the kick ass realm, and so it's going to be hard for a man to beat me in those areas because I learned those things, I learned them well, I practiced them a lot, Um, I bring an enormous amount of energy and and power to those areas. So it's going to take some pretty amazing creature to be better than me in those areas. So if I'm looking for a guy to beat me in those areas, there's maybe five worldwide or so, right? (laughs) And that's, um, and probably all five of them are married or otherwise decrepit or something, right? <laughs> so so that's, not, that's not the one you want to hold out for. But there is areas where I totally trust somebody to show me the way, so to speak. And those are the areas I'm then focusing on. It's not an archetype because these men exist, right? So meaning it's not a (laughs) myth. It's almost a myth. It's like the unicorn, but there is men like that. And a lot of women want those men, right? So you could say it's the quintessential expression of a certain kind of archetype or disposition. Not the only one. There's many, many... uh, expressions of men, but if you tend to want to date men and you want that or th- that kind of an archetype or, or um, expression, you are looking at the, the traits that Heather um, right. described. You know, when I have time on a plane, um, which is really the only time I have time, I sometimes, for the sake of exactly what we're talking about, Put myself in different positions relationally to see how that would be or I look at people I know who are in specific relational uh, circumstances and kind of feel through their body what that's like right and so if you would imagine um, the kind of Heather scenario, right, where she found the man who is so much better in all areas, um, including the ones that she's really good, and she can just become like the, the, the gummy bear, the slinky gummy bear <laughs> of feminine wonder, right? Well, imagine being that all the time, It gets a bit old. I mean, I mean, there is people who want that, but the people who want that usually want that because they don't have what it takes to do something else. And then when they grow a little bit older or have a little bit more experience, then they have to suddenly individuate, right? And that's not the same thing as having had it and letting it go, right? So you have to feel where are you will, where do you have it, and where are you willing to let it go. And then you can see how much of it you would let go. So that, that's where it becomes a very important that you don't pretend that you are going along with things that you are, in the long run, not willing to go along with, right? Which a lot of women do. Yeah. In the beginning, it's all like, sure, you know, let's go to the ball game. Yes, I love the ball game, <laughs> right? Three months into it, it's like, fucking hell, I see another hot dog. I must kill myself, right? <laughs> and then you've sold him a, a wrong bill of goods because he thinks you love the ball game, right? So so it's very, very important um, that you don't uh, sell something you're not willing to maintain or able to maintain. You have to be honest and take a really good, honest, somewhat harsh look at yourself and go, what do I actually have to offer? Where am I willing to surrender, so to speak, to stick with that word? Meaning, where am I really willing to let it go? And where, when really, really, if I'm really honest, I'm not, right. And sometimes it's useful if you have good friends who are honest with you, and they're not the sabotaging kind. You ask them some questions, right? What, where am I really good? What are my gifts? Would you say I'm this? And when everybody goes... <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Yes, sure, you are got to move to Montana onto a farm and become a homesteader. Mm. <laughs> mm. You know, your high heels, not going to do so good on the farm. Oh, no, no, I'm fine, I'm ready for nature. When everybody goes, yeah, right, then you're probably kidding yourself right if people say yeah you know what i can see you could do both or you can you know it's not that important anymore then you pursue that particular thing there's this woman who i know nothing about but she's like the the pioneer woman have you ever seen her what's her name Reed drummond or something like that she was some city woman who Uh, You know, had like some career and everything. Do you remember the details? What was it? Yeah. And she used to have this website where you could see her can and like she has kids and she'd do vegetable gardens. And she went with it, right? She literally, she met this guy who she calls, I think, the cowboy or something like that. Um, And she totally went from high-powered New York City, racing 18 blocks with your Manolos, you know, that kind of thing, to... (laughs) Farm woman, she made a business out of it, exactly. that That's what I'm getting at, right? So was she willing to surrender her that part of her career to her men, um, have children move in the country, uh, do canning, right? Yes. Was she able to just do that? No. She knew that, though, and she did something with it. And she's supposedly really, really big. I, I have to look her up again. Don't compromise the things you can't compromise because you're going to get so fucked up when you try squeezing yourself into the mold of a guy. Well, and you know, it's pretty natural for women to do that because biologically that's what you had to do. You had to fall in line so that there was survival. But those days are over. Yeah. Yeah. We all have been raised to do that, even the most progressive of us, simply by the fact that certain things are required. Otherwise, you wouldn't have children, right? And I'm the perfect caveat of what happens when you give somebody too much freedom, right? Well, because I didn't have children. So I have essentially not fulfilled my biological prerogative because I had too many options, I mean, that's a very hard truth, but that's a truth you have to consider, is that when you have that much choice, you can make choices that have nothing to do with the good of the species. Mm -hmm. And so my, uh, you know, fantastic Austrian gene pool ends with me. When we talk about what we're talking about, which is choosing a man and choosing a life that is yours, um, you have to know that there's an innate built-in risk, which is that you might go off the reservation. I'm fine with that, personally, but it's something to consider, right? That with uh, that much freedom come certain sets of circumstances that not, might not be conventionally appropriate. It depends on your goals and values. So if I want to have children, uh-huh. I'm, you know, I'm using myself uh-huh. because it's easier than coming up with some you know, hypothetical scenario. If I want children, if I say that I want children, that requires a set of circumstances. For one, I need to get some sperm in me, uh-huh. right? So that can be accomplished via a sperm bank uh, a a one night stand, or somebody who's actually willing to raise the children with me. Right, so there comes a, there come forks in the road, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy as me going, child. Right, right. so it, it's a it's decision trees all along. Right. Between me saying I want a child and me having a child. My own fertility, my age, my health, my financial uh, status. Um, Can I raise my children myself or do I have to put them in a daycare or do I have family around or do I need a nanny? Can I afford a nanny? Can I trust a nanny? You know, like, so there is a million decision trees that make it such that. I, if I'm responsible, right, I could just get knocked up after getting high and, you know, dragging some guy in the bushes. Then the decision tree, uh, you know, solves itself, but that's not what we're talking about, right? So there is all these decisions that have to happen and all the things that have to be fulfilled so I can have a child. If I follow that through and I'm not willing to do what that takes or I'm not capable of doing what that takes... Meaning, I can't find a man. I decide I want a chi- uh, my child to be raised with a man. Can I find a man? Can I find a man in time before my biological clock goes? Uh, am I still fertile? Does he want children? Is there enough money now? You know. So there's a million things that you have to consider. So that would be the reservation, if that's what I want, so to speak. Right? That's that's my thing, and that would be fulfilling my biological prerogative which requires that people have children so that those children have children and so on and so on and so on, right? So if I'm not willing to do any of those or or even one of those things along those decision trees, I've left that reservation, Mm -hmm. right? So if I say, uh, in my case, one of the big things was I did not want other people to raise my children, my my fictitious children, right? Mm -hmm. And... In my, in my feeling through the different aspects of my life and what I wanted for myself creat- creatively and as a career and as a lifestyle, having children and raising them myself wasn't an option because I couldn't not work financially uh, and resource-wise. I don't have parents in this country or anything like that. And I actually didn't want to not work. And I wanted to go down that road I had been on and um, hence, that's where it ended. Mm-hmm. So I have left that reservation, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that makes me a biological pariah, so to speak. Now, I don't give a shit mm-hmm. right, about that, personally. And I don't care when people go, oh, so you have no children. Then the next question there is, were you not able to? And then they're really, really shocked when I go, no, I chose not to. Oh, you didn't have a man? No, no, I had a man. I, had a, I have a husband. Uh, oh, but why wouldn't you? Well, because I don't want to. Oh. Right. <laughs> and then, then then, they back off slowly, right? So those are not my people, mm-hmm. right? So that's how you determine the reservation, so to speak. It's not the reservation. It's your reservation, so to speak. That's The, the same thing is true for being an artist. You stayed in... Uh, you know, apartments without heating in the fucking winter in New York City because you were pursuing your art, right? So that was, you took um, a very specific path based on the fact that you wanted something. That's certainly leaving the common perception of what you should have done behind. And that makes you off norm, so to speak, wh- ever norm you look at. But if you, for instance, only know artists and that's the norm, then you haven't gone off the reservation. Mm-hmm. You would have gone off the reservation if you could have caved and took, in, took a secretarial job uh, and stopped uh, singing. Right? So your artist friends would have gone, Jesus, she's gone. She's gone. <laughs> right. She lives in a heated apartment. You know? She's totally off the reservation. Right. So that's, that. you have to see it. It's context-specific. It's a matter of practicality. It has nothing to do with compromise. It has to do with the fact that if Heather would want children, then there is a set of circumstances in place that has to do with time right. and her youth and her looks and her market value, right? That, that's a, a very brutal thing to say, but talk to any man, particularly the men she wants, right? And I'm not saying she should compromise in the sense that she should be with a guy who isn't reaching her levels. I'm just saying she can be with a guy who doesn't reach her levels in the areas where she has competence, mm. which is very different, right? I'm not saying get some idiot, uh, <laughs> fall in love, fall, you know, make the best of it. I'm saying there isn't that many guys who can kick ass the way Heather can in the realms where she's really good, right? That's just the way it goes. If she wants children, she has a window, and it's a very short window, right? So that's what I'm talking about. And when you've had children, uh, when you've been divorced, when you've had uh, financial support, when you've essentially for a lack of a better word, have retired that particular thrust of your life, you can wait 10 years, because it doesn't matter, right? It's not a matter of an essential part of you never being able to be fulfilled, right? And I wouldn't suggest that Heather wait 10 years. I've worked with over 40,000 client hours in my lifetime, and I can tell you that the precious snowflakes who waited and waited and waited did not end up with good men mm-hmm. no, in their youth. Now, when you are done with the first round, so to speak, you can take your time, you have distinctions, you have experience, you know exactly who you are, you don't know exactly what you want, uh, but that's not true in your 30s. For the most part. Some people are super advanced, but if I would have married in my late 20s... (sighs) Fucking hell, is all I can say, right? So, and if I would have married who I thought I was supposed to marry in my late 30s, would not have ended well, you know. And I had that option because I wasn't going to have children... Um, I didn't get married till I was 37, so I did wait and wait and wait, but I could do so because it didn't, you know, my eggs weren't uh, a consideration, and furthermore, what she's talking about is a very specific kind of a man, very specific kind of a man, and that particular man isn't interested in commitment. So, if you hope you can turn that kind of a man around, it's not going to happen. I know several of those men, like four or five of them. None of them is in a conventional relationship. If you you know, in your 30s meet a guy, let's say, in your early 40s or so, right? And he hasn't committed yet. He hasn't been married yet. So there's no evidence yet that this guy has the material, the, 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 the fortitude for a long-term relationship if he hasn't had one by 40, let's say, right? If the best he could ever do is like a year and a half and he cheated on the side or so, run, 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 run right? Really fast. But, of course, if you meet a guy with 40 who got married, let's say, with 24, um, had a 12-, 13-year-old relationship, you know, then something went wrong, now, now he's divorced, but he's shown some staying power, that's a different story altogether. But if he hasn't done that, you're essentially assuming that a guy who has never had that Like you said, either can't have it and you're taking a guy who takes you because you're available or he's incapable of having it and neither of those you want. But why a man would commit and forego the other flavors is because something greater is available, right? So, And men do that. And good men do that. And that's why I was saying, if like, let's say, this is, a, this is a good example because many men tend towards that. If you find a man who has a very strong, let's call it spiritual orientation, let's just call it that, whatever that means to you. Um, that doesn't mean he's necessarily religious, but that he's a man of God, so to speak, Right. In his chosen way, can be tantric, can be, uh, you know, Buddhist, can be Christian, but somebody whose whose values are um, in service of that, that particular orientation has a fire to it. Like a, I want to, it's not a fervor because that's unhealthy, but a fire to it. And that particular fire can be well supported by a woman. likes where he's going right and so why a man would commit to you particularly to you is because you have strength and you have fortitude and you're probably loyal as fuck you know right so a a guy would commit to you because of those things you've proven that you will not crack under pressure because when you do that on a fishing boat you die right so so you are you have a big stamp that says does not crack under pressure right that's an enormous enormous trait right that is rare in women and that's very valuable to a man who wants to go somewhere where there is pressure and where there is a momentum and where things are being passionately pursued you're you're perfect for that you can pull your weight you're not afraid of hard work you're not squeamish you're not going to scream the first time some fingernail splits uh uh, during the adventure of whatever it is right so that's that's why a man would commit to you personally Mm -hmm. right and so those are the things you cultivate and then you find the kind of guy who has the thing that you can support so so that's the that's the thing that, that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about compromise at all. I'm very much not for compromise, except if your preciousness keeps you from having the things you want. Mm-hmm. then fuck um, you know, the holding out. because if, for instance and I know lots of women like that who didn't have children in their 30s, and now they are struggling because it was all precious snowflake here and the guy wasn't quite that and it wasn't this and couldn't do that and now they've ended up with some you know, friend with benefits who's uh, agreed to father the child if he doesn't have to be that involved, right? And so they've gotten way worse than if they would have made a few concessions. Yeah. And that's, that's, the, that's the thing that around biology there are some things to consider. Yeah. And that is also why a lot of women do get divorced once they have had children, mm. because when you pick a man to father your children you are not you are picking him for for a specific job description, and when you are kind of tired of that guy 's job description, you want a bit of adventure or you want more sex or you want um, whatever more consideration then that guy is no longer the guy. And if that guy doesn't want to change into that particular thing, then women leave. A fair expectation that he changes? Yeah. No, he won't. Now, the only chance you have is when you change the rules in a way that's exciting enough that you both start something else. But you can't be who you are and expect him to be different because sure. you hired him for a very specific job. Right? You have to really understand that, that why would he? No. Yeah, well, that, that's a very, very important consideration. a very, very important consideration. It can be done. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's not because he's w- willing to change because of you. That's never a good idea, right? Cause you, because, you're forcing, because you're saying who you are is no longer good enough for me. And why would a guy? Deal with that. You have to find something that's so good that you point towards that he feels compelled to develop that more, versus pointing to his deficiency. If if essentially if the guy comes to you, if your husband comes to you and says, "Look, I loved you and I still love you, but I I you know I don't think you're hot anymore because I want a brunette with big tits and a big ass." And I want to fuck every day. And uh, I need you to have a Spanish accent. (laughs) Right? (laughs) What are you going to do with that? That is what, when you say, I want you to be more burly, it's the exact same thing as saying he wants you to be Salma Hayek. Right? And you're not Salma Hayek. Mm -hmm. However, right, if he feels the fiery nature of the Salma Hayek, I'm making this mm-hmm. up, right? right? And you have a moment where you display some of that. Mm-hmm. And he is over the moon. Mm-hmm. And he can't keep his hands off you. And he's just like, oh my God, when you did that thing with your hips. and I mean, this is a silly example, right? Because it's much bigger than looks. But then you suddenly, like, you're going to be swishing down the hallway. Mm-hmm. But not because he said you are not that, right? So the only way that he's going to willingly change without you telling him is that when he even displays a tiny little percentile of the thing that you consider, let's say, burly, you are essentially frothing in orgasmic ecstasy, (laughs) right? And when he doesn't, you ignore it, That's your only chance. If you start nagging him, it's not going to happen because one of two things will happen. He'll do what you tell him to do. You're going to feel like he only did it because you told him and it's not quite it anyway because you told him. And what do you know about Burley, really? Right? You don't. Uh, you know what it feels like when it feels good, but you don't know how to get there. So if he's doing it, he's your bitch or your little boy. If he's not doing it, he's an asshole, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But if he's displaying even a moment of something that feels like it's in the vicinity of the thing you want, right? You must be ecstatic. So discipline is discipline, So another way of saying that is practice is practice, right? So you you can interchange these for the sake of our conversation, not for the sake of all conversations. But if you commit to a daily practice, um, or if you commit to a daily discipline, right, the practice needs discipline and the discipline needs practice. So you have to kind of look at it in the sense that there are the stories that hold you back. There are the fears, there's the inner critic, there's all of those things and they're valid, but they really are ghosts wafting by that aren't examinable, if there's such a word, until you have a practice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So. So if I go to you, well, why aren't you writing every morning? Well, because I have these stories, okay? What are they stories? Well, these are the stories. But, well, how do they influence you? Well, I can't write in the morning. Well, can't you? Or, well, you know, so it becomes, it's, you can't grasp it. So the one of the um, big, and this is true for everyone and every kind of practice, one of the big um, markers of a good practice is that it shows you the stories and the coping and the excuses and the procrastination that are really there but it it kind of brings them front and center and you can actually look at them honestly versus you have some ideas and there's some ghosts wafting by right so the way you would then go at this, let's say, is that you commit to 15 minutes of writing, let's say, every morning. And I'm saying specifically writing because that's such a good specific example. You could also say that every morning you're going to do flower arranging or gardening or something like that. Would be the same. It would be a, or painting or drawing or whatever. You determine the practice and then... As you step up to the practice, all the things that make you not practice show up and then you can note those, mm-hmm. right? You don't beat yourself up. You don't try and change things. You hold steady with the thread of the practice. The assignment is 10 minutes a day of writing, right? Everything else is extra. You can write longer if you want to, but you can't write shorter and there's no bowing out of that, Now, then you will see your actual relationship to the subject, right? And once again, it doesn't matter how many stories you have, you're going to sit there for 10 minutes. And if you don't write for 10 minutes, but you sit there in front of an open document, uh, you know, then so be it. But you have done your 10 minutes of writing. Maybe you just go, you know, we're not talking about the quality of the writing, the content of the writing or anything. We're talking about the act of stepping up then what I suggest you do is you examine all the reasons why you're not stepping up and just continue you can starve those things very effectively by holding steady then of course the nicest part about a daily practice can I can't say enough about that is that you get to measure who you are and what is happening in your body vis-a-vis the practice. And that's priceless. You can't, you, you, you can't get that any other way because when you do something every day, your entire being is juxtaposed to that action. So one morning you sit down, and you're all over the fucking place, right? And you can't focus at all, and it's like crazy shit. And you go, okay, all right. Then the next day, you sit down, and you're like, whoo. And then you can go, what did I do yesterday? Oh, I started reading Facebook in bed. I got really upset about blah, 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 because, you know, why is she saying these things? We both know that that's not true or whatever, right? This is my inner voice. Um, <laughs> right? So that gives your body a certain disposition that when you bring to your writing produces a certain outcome. The next morning you got up, your are a lover, uh, and you had you know a little bit of hot and heavy in the morning, and then you had a nice cup of coffee, and you, you danced blissfully, and you sit down, and suddenly your entire existence goes... And you're like, right? So then, those those uh, differences in your body, you know, sometimes you eat sugar and it does something to your system. Sometimes you're tired. Then you can start going. These are the optimal situations for this task. And then you can optimize your environment. And this is not only true for writing, mind you, right? This is true for having a business. Uh, finding a man, you know whatever, so then you can optimize the circumstances for that particular task or for that particular creative engagement you know? and and then then you suddenly you know you, you suddenly can go, well, you know what, I can write for an hour, right or uh, I can write for a day or a week or something like that, but that 's not where you start, and you don 't start by of trying to write about the things you want to write about. That can happen, but it's usually best in the beginning to write about things that appear, you know, opinions, you know, like a diary style, free writing kind of a thing as a way to get going. The particular thing that I just described applies to Or applies to very large parts of my life, right? Which are, over the over time, have been optimized for certain aspects, which is why I can do what I can do while traveling as much. And so that particular backbone of practice helped me step into the book via sitting down and starting to write, right? Now I would be lying if I'd say that I sat down and just started writing, right? What what it was, was I sat down, and then I watched all of Game of Thrones, all five seasons, right? Yes, but I, what I did is I sat, I sat down, and the way I, I did it was, because I only had six weeks, so I knew there was no time after the six weeks, and the, on the last day of the six weeks, I was on my way to Amsterdam, and that was that, and, and two days later the book was actually due. So I just got up in the morning at 6 and I went into my writing shed and I stayed in there till midnight. And I essentially starved my procrastination by not getting out of this fucking shed, and it was hot. Oh. It was so hot. It was the summer in Ohio, right? It was like 80, 90 degrees in there. and I sleep on the sofa for hours on end because it was so fucking hot and I would not get out and within probably three days I had made it through the completely normal thing and that's not to say I didn't write in those three days but I didn't write in in the the kind of prolific way I needed to write to produce 64,000 words right Uh, which is a lot and and you have to produce a bit more because you know edits and stuff like that so Um, so I applied the very thing that I just told her to the proceedings but I didn't have the luxury to start with 10 minutes a day I just had to commit to 6 a.m to midnight sleep do it again sleep do it again the only day I took off was my birthday which was in the middle of that six weeks and that was that and Um, Then I would have these massively prolific phases where I'd write two, three chapters in a day. And then I'd hit another one of those. And eventually, when we talk about this, within the six weeks, I identified ebbs and flows as natural cycles. And you have to determine your own natural cycles, but I could clearly... I could clearly see within two or three weeks, I had, the, I had figured out how it goes. And then when I hit one of those low points, I knew it would come back. So there's that. And then the other thing that's very good, but this falls into the category of don't read about how you should write, just write. But if you need to read about such things, there's a book called the war of art. Uh, some of that's very useful. At some point, about halfway through the book, I kind of lost interest. Um, but the beginning, you're like, yeah, 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 and then it's like, yeah. You know, but but I think that's that that's a good thing. So six weeks is not a long time, right? And for a fairly long book, and, and the only reason I could do it is because it was all original material and I didn't have to research. If I would have had to research, it would have been. Uh, not not doable you know <laughs> I once uh this is the last thing I want to say about that I once uh stayed at the vacation home of a guy who is considered like the one of the big authorities on the I Ching mm-hmm. which is kind of a divining system a Chinese divining system don't worry about it because uh, he clearly wasn't the expert because in that particular Uh, summer house or summer cabin was an entire wall of I Ching books that where all the passages that he had taken into his books were highlighted and color-coded and I was like I'm sure he rewrote it enough that it wasn't considered plagiarism yes, he's the foremost highlighter of the I Ching yes oh Oh, you know talking about that about the sex toys I've gotten probably seven or eight vibrators in the mail since the book came out. So it seems to be that that's a logical conclusion where people just now send me vibrators and say, would you like to endorse that? And it's like, no, I don't believe in vibrators. <laughs> believe in sensitizing, you know? <laughs> Maybe we should have a bonfire with the vibrators or something. That's probably not the endorsement they wanted, but, it, but that's been happening, right? Yeah. So, which is kind of interesting. If you Thank you for listening to the Michaela Bohm podcast. Michaela's first book, The Wild Woman's Way, published by Atria, Simon & Schuster, is available in hardcover and audiobook on August 21st, 2018. To order your copy, click the link in the show notes below.